Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Straw Hut Media. Hello on the rockers. Are you living your passion? Tonight we are talking about life pivoting through art with multiple Emmy Award nominated makeup artist turned jazz singer Angie Wells is here and PR professional of the year CEO turned children's book author Daryl McCullough and me, your favorite host with the sassy most. Raise a glass of the drinks begin. It's on the rocks. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death. I'd like to propose a toast. This is On the Rocks with Alexander, where I drink with your favorite celebrities as we talk about fashion, entertainment, pop culture, reality TV, and well, that's about it. So pop a cork, lean back, and raise a glass to On the Rocks. Fasten your Lord have mercy, buns and bows and pantyhose on the Rocks podcast, a place where we're too glam to give a damn. Okay, we're a couple of weeks into January. Um, I've used all my Weight Watcher points already for the year <laughs> in two weeks. Wah, wah, that's how my resolution's going. How's yours? <whistles> Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at On the Rocks on Air and on Facebook on the Rocks Radio Show. Send me an email. Book me for a pride, wedding, funeral, quinceanera, bris. I don't care. I'll show up. Info at ontherocksradioshow.com. Send us your comments, your guest requests, and your guest questions. The show's presented by Straw Hat Media. You can watch and or listen to our now over 340 episodes for free at ontherocksradioshow.com. You can watch us on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV on the Outet.tv app, Facebook Watch, streaming with pride on SVTV, and on Channel 31 on the East Coast. Hello, East Coast. Uh, we proudly tape at UBN Go Studios, your one-stop place for podcasting. All right, let's get the show on the road. Angie Wells celebrated jazz singer who can be heard nationwide on Sirius XM's Real Jazz and seen performing in jazz clubs and festivals worldwide. Look look at her. Gorgeous. Uh, she's known for her resonant, soulful voice and original captivating storytelling lyrics that often includes commentary on civil rights issues. She channels Nina Simone, who was the master at doing this, in her spellbounding jazz, blues, soul, and gospel sound. But she first made a name in Hollywood as a celebrated makeup artist with two primetime Emmy Award nominations, including for her work on AMC's Mad Men. I want to ask about John Hamm, but we'll, we'll wait for that. Uh, she is also behind the makeup for the award-winning historical drama films Harriet and Mudbound. And Carrie Mulligan loved her work so much, she brought her into Promising Young Woman. Um, each year, Angie also crafts the perfect looks backstage before uh, for both nominees and presenters before they appear on the Emmys, Academy Awards, and Golden Globes. I, I bet there's stories there. Check out Angie's latest album, Truth Be Told, A Journey from Traditional Jazz to Funk, and we'll be getting a little peek at that. Please welcome Angie. Angie Wells. No. 
Also joining us today, Daryl is a 30-year communications veteran, having run a Citizen Relations, a global communications firm, as CEO and now Chair Emeritus. He's worked for the world's top companies and top brands. He has been PR Professional of the Year by PRSA LA and was a juror at the prestigious Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity, which is the Oscars of advertising. Currently working with his husband, George, a social media strategist, they created and launched their new marketing agency, McGriffin Media. Daryl has always loved creative expression and writing, and his first published book uh, was The Story of Tree and Cloud, written and published in memory of his mother. His second book, Chubby the Bear's Big Choice, hit bookstores just prior to the holidays. Please welcome Daryl. <laughs> All right, we have a lot to talk about. And like I said, the whole theme is pivoting career. Tony, can you turn the video on behind me? I look like I'm frozen in time. There we go. I'm not that tipsy yet. <laughs> you both are so quiet. And I know you all have big personalities. Like, I know that. I kind of want to start where it all began. Um, Angie, what kind of kid were you growing up in Philadelphia? Were you like the quiet schoolgirl or were you precocious? What was happening? No, I was not the quiet schoolgirl. I was the little girl who um, would put on a slip and pretend it was an evening gown. Same. <laughs> so was and I. I was And, uh, you know, I love dress up and I'd put on my mom's pearls and hats and I always wore gloves and I always carried a pocketbook. Same. So, yeah, I was I was glam just glam. like you, Daniel. That is oh, glam. I was total glam. Um, what I love and I have kind of music in my family from when I was a kid as well. Listening to records with your father every Sunday because he wouldn't go to church. Your mom was at church. She was playing gospel and piano, right? And singing yes. in the choir. Yep. But I can I can see this in my mind, you sitting and listening to vinyls, listening to Nina Simone, listening to Sarah Vaughn, not only bonding with your father, but also just having that music at such a young age. Yes. Um, and it's funny that your mother and father were on different sides of music, church music and then, you know, jazz. What did each of your parents teach you the most about music growing up, just by the way that they were, how they, how they would talk about music? I think it was just, you know, that music was something that you felt. It was something that you enjoyed. It was something that got inside of you. It created some type of an emotion. Um, and whatever emotion it created, the fact that it created an emotion was a good thing. Yeah. So that's kind of what I really got out of it. You know, uh, it, it, my mother loved jazz as well. She, but she, you know, she went, to, we went to church on Sunday and when uh, we'd get home and she'd be making dinner, I'd be on the couch with my dad listening to, you know, the other side of the church music. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and I absolutely love that. And like I said, I, I can envision it when they make, you know, the biopic of, of your life, that's going to be one of the saints. Like I, I can just see it. Um, and Daryl grew up in Pennsylvania, youngest of uh, five kids, five kids. And I want to know what, what kind of kid were you? I was the, like I said in my book, the chubby, the chubby gay kid that didn't know he was gay. Were you like uh, cracking jokes left and right though? Or? No, I was, I was active, uh, but growing up in a, the last of five, you have a lot of mo role models ahead of you. So my sisters were in theater and music, and my brothers were both three-sport superstar athletes. Uh, so I was trying to find my lane. You, you did like volleyball, right? I played. Vo I found volleyball, which is you know when your brothers play f baseball, baseball, and football, and they're great. You know, you got to find another sport. <laughs> and that's what I did. I found volleyball and really kind of excelled at that. Now, how do you keep your voice from being heard? Or how do you keep your voice being heard with four other siblings? 
you just get a little louder, yeah. <laughs> a little more creative. You know, I uh, I was blessed with you know really great loving family, and they supported me in whatever I did, and I got into a little bit of everything. I was into music. My family were very musical. Uh, my grandma would sit at the piano and show me how she played just by ear. So I really kind of had a lot of really great role models, and you know, going through school. I always had a teacher that had one of my siblings. So their expectation for me yeah. was, well, your sister was an A student. You better be an A student. Or your brother was really great at this. Uh, and it really kind of set a high bar. And I, it was fun trying to keep up. What I love, you know, I was raised by my mom and, and grandma. And your grandma kind of lived in a little apartment hooked right up next, next to, to the us, family yep. house, right? Right next to my bedroom. <laughs> the bedroom door right opened into her grandmother's suite. Well, that could be a blessing and a curse depending on how old you are. You're like, grandma, look away. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what did your grandma teach you most about life growing up since she was such a big part of it? She was amazing. She Her name was Nora. Uh, she raised 10 kids through the Depression. Her oh, husband wow. died early. My dad was only 12 when his father died. Oh, so wow. she raised 10 kids on a farm by herself. Wow. Uh, it's She's really an American hero. And I want to, my dream is to write a screenplay about her and have Frances McDormand play her because uh, it's that type of a heroic woman role yeah. model that people need to know more about. But, you know, she would make her own soap. I mean, it was in the 60s and 70s, but she would still make her own soap. She knew every plant. She would be in the garden from morning, noon, and night. She would make tea from the things that she harvested in the garden. We used to sit around a Sunday supper and she would pick flowers off of the centerpiece and put them on butter bread and eat them. And the kids would, we kids would just laugh ourselves silly because she was eating the centerpiece, but she knew that she grew edible flowers and she knew which ones were edible and weren't. So I, she was just an extraordinary woman. You know, that's how they make a past generation. We're so pampered nowadays and the younger generation, you know, they can't do anything on their own without like their phone. Can you imagine having to make your own soap? I can't even make toast. <laughs> oh, and when the when the lie was cooking, you knew she was oh, making yeah. toast. Your eyes oh, were burning. The lie, yes. <laughs> um, so we're going to do something different because we're going to talk about how both of you have kind of pivoted your lives to passion. We're going to kind of go opposite. I, w I really want to start with your music career, and I want to start with your business career and see how, how it flips. Um, what I love about how you got into music, um, visiting a friend in France at a little jazz club, and you're like, oh, I guess I'll go up and sing a couple of... A couple of tunes. Well, she kind of put me on the spot, actually. Um, and you're like, don't ask me to sing. And they're like, rah! <laughs> <laughs> she, she said to me over dinner, it's like, oh, so listen, I told the band, my friend and American jazz singers here. And so uh, they want you to come up and do a few numbers. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I had just been, you know, just started doing some vocal coaching and things like taking, you know, lessons with a vocal coach and studying a bit and going to a few jam sessions. But I certainly didn't uh, plan on going to Paris and singing in the jazz club on that trip. But uh, it started the ball rolling. It was the, the catalyst. The, and the bug just kind of hit, hit you. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I've always loved singing. I'd sing as a kid and, you know, the choir and I sang in college a little bit. But 
I never really was sure that my voice was good enough to try it on my own. It was sort of like, you know, when you watch American Idol and there's that person who goes, well, my grandmom said I could sing. And then they get up and they sing. <laughs> and, and you're, like, and, you're yeah. like, oh, and the producer's so excited. They're like, yes, yeah, let's play yeah, this one. It's like, yeah, grandma needs a hearing aid. Um, yeah, it just <laughs> I didn't want to be like that person. So it was it took me a long time to sort of really believe that I had a voice. What was that defining moment where it kind of clicked and you're like, yeah, I'm doing the damn thing? Um, it was sort of that night because people, the reaction that I got was amazing. And I just thought, wow, they're, you know, I'm going to take a photo with you. Can I buy you champagne? You're amazing. And so I thought, well, OK, I guess all of these people in this place who love jazz can't all be wrong. So there must be something there. And France has been a good home to you. you you've, you've toured there many, many times. Yes. What yes. is it about the culture there that appreciates your music and what do you appreciate about th that culture? Well, you know, they are very culturally driven. I mean, they love the arts, you know, all kinds of arts, you, know, you name it. It's anything artistic, it's going to be busy in France. Um, and I think that there is a real appreciation also for feeling things. So interestingly enough, you know, if you sing lyrics, even if they don't understand the words, if you put forth the emotion, they get it. Hmm. Well, and so when we hear a French song too, when it's they, there's that you know fully emotive, you kind of understand what what the song's about. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and Daryl, I'm gonna go over to you. Um, you know, you had a great life on the East Coast, family there, everything, and you decided to pack up your bags and head to the West Coast to go to USC. That was a big choice. That was my first pivot. Yeah, <laughs> that was. What What made you think, you know what, it's time for me to head out on, on my own? Well, I was working in higher education at the time and I uh, spent about five years in that role doing PR and alumni relations for my alma mater, Albright College. Shout out to Albright. Yes. And I was just getting a little bored after, you know, dusting out the folder for homecoming and graduation every year and kind of doing the same thing with a little bit of a twist. I just said, you know what, this is fun, but I need to be challenged. And I was working at an academic institution and I knew that I would never have to apologize for going back to school. Yeah. yeah. So when I said that I was interested in going back- It's time to, to pivot again. <laughs> <laughs> when I said that, told people I was leaving to go back to school. Everybody was like, yes, do you follow your dream? So I packed up the car and drove across the country and started to, you know, work and go to school at the same time. It was not easy. You know, we're going to get to that because I have a question about that. Um, but all during your studies, theater and arts was always a, a big part of your life. Big passion. You know, I yeah. was in the school plays in high school and college. Uh, was an English major in college, so I uh, had the ability to, you know, do theater and and you know it was a small liberal arts college, so it really let you dive into whatever your passion was. So I was in the band, chorus, orchestra, uh, theater, you name it. Did the radio, you know, had a radio show. And the bug didn't bite you big enough to be like, you know what, I want to be an actor. No, I, I think I never wanted to starve. Look at me, I, my size. <laughs> I never wanted to starve for my art. And I knew it was, I knew that was rarefied air to do stuff that Angie's doing. And I just, I thought that, you know, that just wasn't going to be for me. So I put that aside. And, you know, ironically, everybody patted me on the back and said, yep, you go be an actor. I had, I had done two shows that summer. I was the lead in The Nerd and I was the lead in Romantic Comedy. 
And you know, so people thought, oh, he's he's going out to California to try to make it. Yeah. And it was the exact opposite. I was like, I'm going to go and get a serious day job. Well, I'm, you, you did, and and then some. Um, Angie, I want to talk about coming back from France, and that's when you really kind of got into vocal instruction. Coming into it a little bit later in, in life, it's not like you were, you know, professionally coached when you were a kid. What was it like knowing how songs sounded, the textures, knowing how you had already taught yourself how to sing, but then having to be regimented and really learn your craft? Did you have any challenges there? You know, I had great coaches. Um, and my, I have to say, probably the coach I spent the most time with, his name was Mike Campbell. Mike really, um, he was sort of an uplifter. So I never really felt like down if there was something that there was, you know, a challenge. But I, I have to say it it wasn't that horribly hard. Um, you know, I, I was blessed that there was something natural there. Yeah. And so there was something for him to work with. Um, so it was just learning things like, uh, you know, diction or you know holding your mouth in a certain position to have certain vowels come out clearly and breath breath you know breath control is really important yeah. but otherwise no it was always fun for me i always loved learning and listening to you know him and his the advice that he would offer and the songs that he would suggest that i sang i must admit it's 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 been lovely i've enjoyed it that was fresh Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, that's that's a good experience. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of people in entertainment that listen to the show. It's finding a coach that you fit with. Yes, absolutely. When I went to Chapman University, I really wanted to study music because I'd come from musical theater and I had studied vocal instruction from when I was a kid. Um, and then they hooked me up with a vocal instructor and they put me in the opera department, which was the worst thing that they could have done. It took all the joy from the music. Yes. It was all about, you know, the, the, the math of the music, which is important. Yes. It's important to understand structure and concepts, but took literally all of the joy, for, forcing my voice into something that it was not. Um, and it was because it just didn't click. So it's to find those. And you found power partners all along your career, people you collaborate with, yes. people that produce for you. Yes. And it's it creates this magic. It does. It really does. It's, um, you know, collaboration is a wonderful thing. And like you said, knowing where you fit. Yeah. You know, is there, it's really important because, you know, there may be certain types of music that, okay, maybe I'm not going to sing that. That may not be for me. Yeah. I may love it, but maybe my voice won't go there. So, no, I agree with you 100%. And I would say, you know, when picking a vocal coach, you know, listen, do you like the way that person sounds? Um, do you like uh, sort of the theories that they're teaching or how the other people that they are teaching, do you like what's happening with their voices? Um, is that something you think you can do? Because you're, you're right, it does have to match. 
it really does need to be a good match. We're talking about pivoting. You know, the minute it's not fun, the minute it takes all the joy out of your life, it's time to leave right. or pivot or find another way to do that. Yes, I agree 100%. And I want to talk about um, during your vocal instruction and in, in the early part of your career, you found out that you were pregnant. Yes. Um, I want to know how that kind of changed your whole interpretation of a song, the whole energy um, everything, because that is life changing, obviously. It is. It is. And it, it had been a journey, you know, we've been trying for a while and I had some difficulty. So it was kind of amazing to like come back from France and say, OK, I'm going to go for this singing. And then all of a sudden, boom, something that we'd been trying for a long time actually happened. Um, I think what happens is when you have a child, you become very sensitive to everything that's going on in the world and safety and keeping your child safe and making them feel loved. But I think your, your, your feelings all sort of come out on the outside. Yeah. And uh, I believe that it makes you more sensitive. Mm -hmm. And there are certain songs that I sing now that, you know, it's, it's harder to get through them because they mean something different now. You um, God best bless the child. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, so it's 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 really interesting. Here's a you know a song that you probably wouldn't think of. So I had to sing. Um, I sing every year at the Makeup Artist Guild Awards. I sing the Memorial. Memorial, yeah. And um, the first year, the year that we were in the pandemic, we didn't have the awards, but they sort of pre-recorded things, and I went down and you know recorded a song. And so I did Danny Boy, and it was the first time in my life that I realized that Danny Boy was the person in the grave singing yeah. to the, because I hadn't really heard it that, and then it, it came from this whole other perspective that, yeah, you know, that could be me. I could be waiting for my child. It, it, it just made it a much more mm. painful, <laughs> but yeah. beautiful pain uh, song to sing. So there's lots of songs that, you know, are about Karen to a song called If I Could. I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to sing that song yeah. again because it just, it brings everything to here. Yes. You know, an artist who would let things get there but still have control is Nina Simone. Yes. And I have to say, you capture, when you sing her songs, you capture so much of her texture and her feeling that it's just brimming. It's just right there, you know, and it draws you in and it tells the story. Thank you. Um, very, very much so. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, the joy in pain and grief. We're, we're going to talk about that, especially um, with your story. But we need to get back to your your business. Your business. Um <laughs> You went from intern to CEO. I mean, that's like literally your path uh, for one of the most prestigious PR firms. But while going after your master's, by the way, you're working full time, full time at an entertainment agency. How did you do that? It was uh, a lot of work. I would, and the it would, the job was demanding. You know, we had we had it's joked, PR, sweetie, PR. Yeah. Well, this was a this was a sweatshop PR agency, and we used to joke that there were Friday afternoon staff meetings to plan our weekend work. Like, yeah. <laughs> who's going to come in on Saturday and who's coming in on Sunday? And it was a sweatshop because they the building didn't turn on the air conditioning. Oh my god! So we would literally have fans blowing on us. And be, you're allowed to come in in shorts and t-shirts. Wow. Darn right we are. But when did you have time for school, like physically? You just, you made it work. It was, and I had no other personal life. So it was truly work in school. 
It was. They must have loved you. It was just crazy. Yeah, we know PR. You have no life. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really fun. Uh, then you started at uh, Citizens Relations in an entry level position. It was called Pain PR back in the day, but yeah, same company. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, then beca- eventually became their CEO. Uh, without a year by year explanation, how does that happen? What do you attribute your success? Well, I was older, so I had and I had an advanced degree, and I had a lot of ambition in my dad instilled in me a work ethic and my mom that was and grandma like, were you making your own grandma, soap too yep <laughs> they instilled in me to to work hard and do your best so i think that was always part of the drive that i had and i was in a field of communications where creativity really helps you stand out and i my theater and arts and music background you know is creative at the heart yeah and I was able to apply all that kind of nurturing of creativity into my professional work and come up with ideas or, or programs that really stood out or broke through. And that was really the claim to fame. And I was part of some PR campaigns that were just massively successful. And it just created, it put you on that it list. Uh, our firm, I can't take complete credit for it, but I was part of the team that came up with this zany idea for our client Taco Bell. It was called the Taco (laughs) Liberty Bell idea. And the idea was this, that Taco Bell was going to buy the Liberty Bell and move it to Taco Bell headquarters in Irvine and rename it the Taco Liberty Bell. And we put this campaign on and made people believe this. And we later revealed that it was on April Fool's Day and it was an April Fool's joke. And it was the first really April Fool's joke of its kind. Uh, And it, it was massive. It was on every morning show. Going viral on, before on the viral nightly, thing. Yeah. What was it? Thanks, and it was during the early days of AOL chat rooms. Uh, I remember those. We had people in chat rooms talking about it, and we were trying to manage that. And uh, we had we had callers calling into radio shows. And it was truly the buzz of the world at that time. And, uh, you know, every company in the world called our firm and said, we want one of those. Yeah. That, that, that's how you tell and, it. And so watch what you wish for scenario because, you know, when you have that kind of magic in a bottle, it's hard to recreate it. Mm-hmm. And we tried to recreate it many times. And, you know, we got some, we got close a couple of times, but you just can't reach that kind of nirvana every time. And, but it was really what put, put our work on the map and helped put me kind of on a creative map and a creative path to do other things. What was one of your most challenging campaigns? You're like, I cannot believe we got through that. Uh, there's so many the the downside of communications is that we deal with crises yeah uh and some of them are private and some of them you are trying to keep out of the news and keep out of the 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 vernacular and you know those are really trying times because you work as hard or harder on those in those moments to kind of protect a client or to protect people from damage and, um, you know, went through some really big crises that were, took a toll. I had to move to Dayton, Ohio for a, a while during, you know, you might remember back in, I don't even remember what day, what year it was, but there was a pet food recall when there was a, a Chinese kind of ingredient yeah. yep. that was getting into pet foods and killing pets. That was and a long time ago. I, mm-hmm. We had worked for one of the brands and, you know, the, multiple brands were involved and all those brands were, had PR teams helping kind of combat this because it, it wasn't their fault. It was no one's fault. It was a, you know, an ingredient fault. And, it, but it's still, you know, when pets are, pets are perishing, it was really, really difficult. And, well, yeah. Pets sometimes can be closer than, than some humans. For sure. Yeah. But Dayton? They didn't even have Taco Bell there. (laughs) 
I remember I was staying at a in the Drury Inn, uh, which is the equivalent of a Hampton Inn, maybe. And I w- went and bought new sheets and put them on my hotel bed. <laughs> I would take a black light. Actually, I wouldn't. I'd like I don't want to know. Um, I want to talk about your your latest album. Truth be told, yeah. you said that that kind of title song kind of feeds into the whole album, mm-hmm. and you've talked about how Truth Be Told is about the time you spent with your father. It's about the time you spend with your family. Heartbreak. Yes, the album. Yes. Can you talk about the creative process and putting this album together? Oh, sure. Well, the album actually started with one song. Um, it started with the title track. Um, and that actually happened, you know, it, it kind of wrote itself, I almost have to say. Um, it was right after um, the George Floyd had, you know, we had watched that horror on television. Um, and um, I was raw. Yeah, that's all I could say. I was just raw. Um, and I remember I would take drives because we were still dealing with, you know, the shutdown. So that was, you know, I'd get in the car and just go up to PCH or go on the freeway just to get out of the house. And I was in the car and I just started hearing this like humming sound, which is the humming you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of stuck around for quite a few days. And then something, the the words truth be told just came to me. And then they kind of were, you know, circling around each other. And I sat down with a pen and the song just literally, it was as if something was guiding my hand and it wrote itself. And it, um, it, uh, it was sort of the catalyst for me to put together an album because I wanted to talk about, and I felt that so many of us were dealing with so many emotions at that time of, you know, of the COVID shutdown. We had, you know, watching people die on television. Just, it was a lot. And I just felt like I wanted to create an album that sort of told the story of what we kind of go through in life. Um, And not on the nose of like, this is happening. We're dealing with COVID. We're, it's just the story of life. And um, so that was that was sort of where it came from. You know, my grandmother, and the, the history of uh, my family and, you know, the fact that we all at some point, uh, your, your grandmother played a big part in your life. My great grandmother and my grandmother played a big part in my life. Um, you know, heartbreak. We've all been heartbroken. We've all tried to stay positive, accentuate the positive, you know, yep. just so all of these things kind of came to me that, you know, these are all parts of life. And um, I sort of started putting together this list of songs. And of course, I wrote, you know, three other songs for the album. Um, And uh, There's Always Time for Loving was one thing that I felt was really important because we are all too busy. Like all of us, <laughs> just you know, let's for love and I don't it. know, girl. I will no, schedule that, <laughs> but that's the thing, we're all too busy, and that's the you know, the lyric of the song is life keeps us all on the go, we're all moving too fast, so busy multitasking, missing the moment at hand, but we've got to make time for loving so that's really important. So, yeah, I just felt it was important to sort of tell this life story with the album. And it's funny, it comes from a certain time, but then the way you react to songs will change over time as well as yes. experiencing. Like you said, a certain song that you didn't really think about now has a whole different meaning. Yes. Um, we actually have a little bit of There's Always Time for Lovin'. Can, can we take a little peek? Please, this is from your live performances, oh. by the way. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Let's take a little peek. It's bedtime down, my darling. Ass so heavy, I can't see. I pull up the covers, but I can't help notice the way you look at me. Baby, there's always Baby, there's always 
that's how you Beautiful. do the damn thing. But, by the way, that's how you I do mean, it. Yeah, that's how you do it. Um, that was fresh. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I love your presence on stage um, and as well as in the studio. You know, you just you just have this texture, like I said. I want to know how you dance that line when you do a cover, when you sing Sarah Vaughan, when you sing Nina Simone, where you pay homage to the artist, but you also make the song your own. How do you creatively do that? Hmm. You know, it's... Um, I can't say that there is a, a real science to it. I basically am always singing from what I'm feeling in my mm -hmm. gut. And because I, I guess I have such a sort of emotional connection to those artists and their music, I suppose that comes through, that there is some type of, there's a real respect for them and what they did. But at the same time, there's what I'm feeling yeah. that I'm putting with it. And so I make sure to sound like myself. One of the things that someone said to me that I feel is really important is that if you're not sincere, your audience is going to know it. They're going so to pick on that try so fast. To, Yeah. So if you're trying to be somebody that you're not and you're trying to put forth something that you're not really feeling, it's not going to connect. Yeah. And for me one of the most important parts of, of what I do is I love to connect with people. Mm -hmm. It's a symbiotic relationship when you're on stage. You're giving, the audience is receiving, and they're giving you back that love, and then you're giving them back. So there's this sort of circle of energy that happens. And, um, yeah, so if you're not sincere in it, you know, you're not going to get much back. Tell me about performing on Sirius. Um, for any artist that's performed at a Sirius or an iHeart radio station, um, it's a little like dead air kind of because you're kind of there on your own. You're not, you don't have the audience there, but you're expected to do the live as if there's this whole thing. Sound is an issue because like I said, it's dead air. You're in a, in a little studio, not a recording studio either, just, you know. Um, and what a special opportunity for you. Well, that was great. Tell me about the nerves before. Tell me about that, that experience. Well, it was pretty interesting because I had gotten a call from my, my radio promo guy and he said, hey, listen, you know, I, I've got some news for you. He said they very rarely take, you know, more than two songs, two or three songs. He said they're taking four or five of your songs and they want to put them in. And they want to have you come in the studio. That's amazing. And I thought wow, this is really trippy. It was almost, it was very surreal. We went into the studio. I was, I was nervous, but it was a strange kind of nervous. It was that kind of nervous where you're calm. That's that, dangerous because that, that means you're going to kill it. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and, you know, we had I, the band that I, I took with me were guys that I had been working with. So they all know me. We already had our chemistry together. And um, we got there and I have to say it was really amazing. And Mark Ruffin, who, you know, runs that uh, real jazz, um, who did the interview, makes you feel really comfortable. And the fact that somebody of his level um, felt that I was good, I, I also think that kind of gave me, it made my shoulders go back a little yeah. bit like, okay, I guess, you know, you're not that 
kid whose grandma thinks they can sing on American Idol. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was it was just a really surreal experience. But also, I have to say, you know, their studio is really kind of cool, and the the sound engineer was amazing. So when you you hear the sound of everything. Um, it was really beautiful and the engineer was really good. So I felt in it and I was able to you know, close my eyes because yeah. no one's seeing yeah. you um, and just really hear everything, hear every instrument and go with, you know, the flow of what the musicians were doing, because that's what jazz is all about. You're all playing off of each other. So um, that was a really phenomenal experience. It really, really was. Hmm. What do you think sets your jazz singing apart from other jazz singers out there? Oh, hmm. Well, I don't know. I think one of the things that, you know, I do is that and I'm not I'm, I'm not speaking on what other musicians do. I'm just saying what I do. Right. Um, I like to keep that soul in it. I like to have a little bit of that sort of, you know, bluesy, gospely R&B feeling that's sort of floating underneath the jazz so that it's it's not it's not as pure sounding maybe as other jazz artists but I feel that that sort of melange of the two that's who I am and that's what's pure for me and um, I remember years ago when I, I was recording a demo I was working with someone who's you know very well known and they said to me um, and I was really new really new and they said well you know Mm, there's a little bit too much like gospel-y sound in there. You kind of want to take that out. And I literally like changed the way I sang for years because I thought, well, this person knows more than me. And, you know, so they must know. And because I wasn't formally trained, I always tend to, you know, give that respect to those who are. And um, in the last, I don't know, probably five or six years, I just got tired of like, hmm. this doesn't feel good. Yeah. This feels like now, like it's not fun anymore. It feels like work. There you go. And uh, I just said, you know what? I, I called some friends of mine and I spoke with them and they were like, listen, just do you, be you. And you're going to find somebody. There's going to be, there's somebody out there waiting to hear your voice as it is. Just be you. And so I just said, well, you know what? That's it. I'm going for it. There's got to be somebody who's going to like it. Even if there's three people, it'll be for those three people. And so I just started uh, singing the way I feel comfortable. Uh, I love to hear that. And again, that's that pivot when you're not you're not feeling it. You just do it. You know, when Celine Dion was recording her first demo, it was such a bad experience for her because she had all these producers. Because, you know, her voice was, was new at that time. Nobody yes. knew, oh, she's going to be amazing because right. it just sounded different. Right. And so they were forcing her to record these tracks. It was hurting her voice. She was beating her. So she's like, I'm not a good singer. I'm not a good singer. Right. And nobody wanted this demo because it didn't sound like her. And then so she got rid of that whole team. And she's like, I'm going to sing for myself. And then, of course, we know. We, we, know, what we, we know what happened. Yeah. And then she has this unique voice that we all know. It's like, okay, that's Celine. Yes. But at the time, it was so unique. Yes. <sighs> okay, Pivot. Um, Daryl, your first book, The Story of Tree and Cloud, um, I want to know how a CEO of a major PR firm writes a children's book. Um, can you tell us how this happens and the, the story behind it? 
Well, I was um, working very hard, as, as you suggested. And as, as a CEO, you're traveling and on the road a lot. And um, it was around eight years ago, I guess, seven years ago. And my mother was sick. She had been sick for many, many years. Uh, but it was clear that she was getting worse. And she had cancer and she survived that. And she had heart surgery and survived that. And just it was one thing after the next. And you were going back and forth. Back, back and, and forth. forth. I was going back and forth already between our New York and LA offices, uh, traveling to you know the London office, and you know, I knew that I just needed to spend some time with my mother. So I literally made a conscious effort during her final year to spend weeks in Pennsylvania, uh, and this is before working from home was yeah. de rigueur. And so I was able to, because I was in a position of leadership, I was able to kind of carve out some time to really spend that. And because I was traveling so much, I was able to kind of bookend some quick side trips home to Pennsylvania to spend with her. And really the most priceless time. I'm so glad I had that time to be with her. And, you know, I was able to hold her hand when she was passing away. Uh, dad was holding her head and I was holding her hand. And what a beautiful moment for everybody you know it's hard to say that now uh but it, it's looking back it was uh, priceless it was hard then but it's looking back it's just one of the most special moments and after that we were obviously after she passed i was you know upstairs in my childhood bedroom cleaning out my drawer uh and she had left a stack of stuff in my in my desk and on the top of that stack was this little sign, a little placard. It had a deer on it and a kind of a forest scene and said, fear not, I am with thee. You know, Bible verse. Mm -hmm. Underneath that was this like a oak tag paper book that I had written in ninth grade. Uh, and it was a school, school assignment to write a parable. We were actually studying the Bible in, in high school and... The assignment was to write about something that was meaningful to you, but write it in the form of a parable. And I had just lost, this was back when I was in ninth grade, I had just lost my cousin to suicide. And I was devastated and grappling with that. So I wrote this little story about, a little parable about explaining death in a metaphor. And my mom had saved that school assignment for 40 some years. Jeez. And you know, she knew she was dying. She left that in that desk drawer for me to find. And it just touched me to my core. And I knew that one day I had to do something with that. And it just became kind of my mission to dust off that book, rewrite it, and um, and try to get it published. Luckily, my aunt, Marianne, is a very talented nature artist. And I sent her a copy of this book and said, this is what I drew with crayons back in school. Would you be able to illustrate the story? I, I've rewritten it. Um, Tony, can, can we show some of the illustrations? Yeah. And it was uh, just a labor of love, kind of like you, Angie. Oh. Uh, that's the second book. But yeah. the first book was Tree and Cloud. And um, there we go. And, you know, it was just a labor of love. And like you, Angie, if I felt like if one person reads this and it touches them or helps them understand grief, then I've done my job. Yes. And it turns out it's touched a lot of, a lot more people than that. And I hope it continues to touch people because it's a, it's a sweet story. It's uh, written not as a cartoon. It's written 
in all. I can't this tell you how many times I've read this for myself just to get through the day. I know. Yeah, it's, it's uh, for uh, adults and and children. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we're in an age where we're fighting about what we should be exposing children to. How early is too early? What themes should we we be sharing? Having written this, why is it important to talk to grief or about grief to children? Because children hear and learn. You know, the the story is something that kids are seeing happening around them and they don't understand. I dropped off, my husband and I dropped off one of these books to our neighbors who just moved into the neighborhood. And she was just thanking me today. And she said, oh, I can't wait to read it to my children because they lost their grandparents and they've been asking me questions and I don't know how to answer them. And I said, well, this isn't the only way to talk to them, but this is one way. And I think it's uh, an important idea to talk about. You know, it's if you if you try to sweep it under the carpet, they will just stay in their feelings and not understand how to express them, just like I was in ninth grade. And luckily, that teacher asked me to write that, and I did it, and it helped me then, and it helps me today, forty years later. And to summarize, not not to simplify it, it's about a tree that makes a friend, uh, loses that friend in nature, but it's how nature is cyclical. Right. And how there is no end, it just is different. And that that after we die, we have to, the soul and the spirit has to go somewhere. I'm afraid you know, where I'm going to go, I'll tell you it's, that. <laughs> it's too rich. You know, the you know personalities are filled with too much life uh, for just to, to be gone. gone. I think that, that energy lives on. And the book is inspiring people to try to find signs of that energy around us, in the air, in the trees. In the clouds. And it's funny, grief unifies us all. It doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what your gender is, what your class is. We all will go through grief in our life. It's why, happen. Is, why is there such a stigma about talking about it? We're afraid to talk about our grief. You know, it's that record scratch at a, at a dinner party. It's like, oh, oh, talking about grief, I'm uncomfortable. But it unifies us all. Why are we so afraid to talk about it? I think it's not different than race or sexuality. Like, there are just certain certain subject matters that are taboo. You know, my second book about weight, you know, people don't know how to talk about obesity in a way that's productive and helpful. You know, so it's, I just think that there are these kind of subject matters that get kind of skirted and, and talked around or, you know, not <laughs> talked about at all. And, you know, that's causes shame. It causes, you know, fear, it causes anxiety. So revisiting your story from ninth grade, um, knowing what you went through with your mom, it must have been bittersweet to, to go through, but a joy because you have a published book. And to, it's dedicated to her, yeah. to her memory, and nothing would have made her prouder. So I, when every time she I look at it- She knew what she was it, doing. She knew what she was doing. Every time I look at it, I think of her, I think of that memory of finding that story in the, in the drawer. It's just, it's life full circle, not unlike the story. I can't wait till these books uh, be put into musicals that travel from school to school. <laughs> you laugh, yeah, girl. That's a good idea. Yeah. I can play a tree. I can bend. <laughs> well, we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> okay, we're going to talk uh, pivot. Oh, before we pivot, um, I want to know, are our younger generation appreciating jazz? You know, there's always that thought that opera, classical music, and jazz are for an older generation. And I want to know, you know, our youth have access to everything. And I think that's one of the only good things about COVID. Our youth got exposed to Sondheim over again because they were saturating so much content. Do you feel like younger generation appreci appreciates jazz? Do they have access to it? 
Well, I think now that um, Samara Joy won for Best New Artist last year, that sort of brought jazz into the realm of young people. And one of the things that I keep seeing are all of these articles talking about how she is sort of bridging the gap between 20-year-olds to 80-year-olds um, with her music. So I think she's sort of bringing the young people back to jazz. There's also um, a movement called Jazz is Dead. Which, <laughs> Who but, came up with that title? <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get... They need PR. It's like Donuts for Weight Watchers, right? right? <laughs> which is really interesting because... You know, jazz has been dead so many times. We're like, wow, it's dead again? Jesus. It just keeps coming back, you know. Um, it is the ultimate thing of reincarnation. But um, <clears throat> there are two guys who started a sort of a, I guess, production, and they call it Jazz is Dead. And it's all jazz. I, I, mean, I like, love that. Really amazing yeah. jazz on top of that. That's good PR. That's mm. a good campaign. It's like, mm, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, they're, and they're younger and they're bringing a younger audience to it. So I think between Samara and, you know, the Jazz is Dead movement, we'll start seeing that, you know, more young people are going to come back and start listening to jazz. And it's being fused with so many other types of music now, too. So I think that's also That was fresh. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And Dave Cos has been on the show uh, a few times, and he says what he sees in the audience um, are parents bringing their kids or grandparents yes. bringing their kids. And so there is this youth, just like you were taught music from from artists when you were you know, a little girl. Yes. And he says that that's really what's helping. It's become like a family bonding experience. And yes. he sees that in the audience. And you do. I mean, the last uh, concert I did at um, Vibrato, I think there was at least three or four families there with their kids. You know, from ages yeah. 12 to 16. And you put on a show like that, everybody's going to respond. Yes. Okay, we have to talk about your pivot. Uh, <laughs> you originally, and when I found this, I was like, wait, what? You were originally in the corporate world. You studied business and marketing mm -hmm. in Florida. <laughs> no, Philadelphia. F f sorry, f f Philadelphia. Yes. Um, and then you were in the corporate world for like a little bit. Yes, I was. What were you doing? Okay, so. Um... Can you imagine this sassy one in a corporate world? <laughs> I was a corporate trainer. <clears throat> I could see that, though. That, yeah. I, that yeah, I could see. I was a corporate trainer for an, a major insurance company. And uh, I was going to school full-time at night, working full-time during the oh, day. Wow. So a, I didn't a have a car. Yes, it's a choice. <laughs> I didn't have a car. So I would ride from work. And there's no Ubers at this point. And there were no Ubers. Mm -mm. So I would take the two buses an hour to get to school after work. And then I'd be at school until about 10.30, and the bus didn't come heading back until about 11, so I'd get home close to midnight, do homework, and then get up and go to work in the morning. Gee, you know, the energy of youth. I remember those days. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did it, and I didn't 
think anything of it. You know, you just, you did it. It was there and you needed to get it done. So I just did it. And um, right after I graduated college, I got laid off. <laughs> A blessing so, in disguise? It was. Um, and I remember they had headhunters and they hired people to, you know, help us find more work. And after about the third interview, I said, you know, thanks, but I think I'm going to go in another direction. And I went to cosmetology school and became a hairdresser first. <laughs> and then I had been doing makeup as a teenager because I'd modeled as a young woman, younger woman, not young like I'm ancient now. But Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yep. So it kind of came together the beauty. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thing. Just um, makeup, hair. And then I started my own little cosmetic company. Women Image Consulting Company. And I did that for corporate women. I would go to their homes and, you know, take out all the things of the closet that weren't flattering, tell you what colors work with you, let's change your hairstyle for your face, that kind of thing. And I did that for quite a few years. Why is nobody doing this for corporate men? You know how many corporate men are walking around like boo-boo? I'm just like, can... Like, the comb-over is not working, sir. Like, what's happening? <laughs> you know, and they have, like, the blotchy skin. Why can't they get one of these? Well, they can. Former presidents? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I kind of just melted all those things together. The business worked for using it in business. The beauty part of it and kind of smushed together. And then we were living in Chicago, my husband and I, and he was on the road and I was bored because I probably would not have gone to Chicago to live by myself. And so he came home one weekend and I said, you know, I don't think this arrangement's working really well. I, I'm not feeling fulfilled. And he said, well, what would you like to do? I, I love that term, by the way. I'm not feeling fulfilled. Yeah. You're not attacking anybody or anything. You're just no. saying I'm not. I really like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wasn't feeling like I was doing or getting what I needed. Mm. And so I, um, he said to me, this is, and this is a question I tell everybody who's ready to make a pivot and be really, you really have to like make your mind stop and really take the question to heart. If money were no object, what would you be doing? Because unfortunately for most of us, that little thing of, you know, eating and paying bills seems to get in the way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll often tell ourselves why we can't do something before we've even tried it. So I thought about it and uh, I said, you know, I think I'd like to come out to L.A., go out to L.A. and uh, study professional makeup, not just beauty makeup, but right. makeup for film and TV. <clears throat> and that was in, I think, May. June, we came out and we went to the makeup show. I met with um, an Oscar winning artist and asked him to be my mentor. 
I met with another uh, makeup artist who was one of the most uh, popular black female makeup artists at the time in film and TV. And I asked her to be my mentor. Mentorship is a wonderful thing. I got to mm. tell you, you got to. It's a great way to help with things. And I want uh, people to, to hear this, people in the entertainment. It's like sometimes you pick up the phone and be like, hey, can I pick your brain? But you have to search that out. I'm sure you searched this out. Yes. You did your homework. Like, who's in the top? And what can I learn from them? But you got to do make that part of your hustle. Yes, you, you can't do. just expect you to learn everything from YouTube. Right. And plus, it gets you networking already. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And <clears throat> most people, I find, are willing to mentor as long as they see that you're willing to put in the work. 100%. We just had this conversation er earlier today. If you're willing to put in the work and you have an idea of what your path is, you can't just go and say, hey, I need help. Well, what do you need help with? Yeah. What is it that or, you're trying I to I want to be a famous makeup artist. Great. What does that mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it, um, you know, finding a mentor, I think, was was really, really important. And then sort of making a plan and then. So that was June, September 23rd, we moved out here. And September the 25th, I started school. And September the 27th, I had to take the day off from school because I had my first job with MTV. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so. I mean, that's an L.A. story. Don't get it twisted, though. That's not a typical L.A. story, but that is an <laughs> L.A. story. And then Mad Men, Blackish. I mean, you just... you. Ingratiated yourself into the industry. Well, and I want to say this about Mad Men. <clears throat> I was part of the makeup team on that show. Um, it was not, I was not the makeup department head. I like to make sure that everybody's clear. 100%. With all of my other credits are all, and all of my other nominations are all for me as a department head. But that one, I was part of the makeup team. And it was an, a wonderful team to be a part of. Um, it was a great show to work on. And a show that kind of changed the history for AMC, by the way. Yes, it absolutely. Really absolutely. Um, and a period piece. I mean, how fun. I want to talk about one of your other period pieces, which is Harriet. Yes. Um, I read an interview that you did, and it was so specific down to her scar of how you developed that. Um, Tony, can you put the picture up of, of Harriet? Can you talk about your creative process for Harriet? Because we know, uh, we think what we know, what we've read in the school books of you know of, about Harriet. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the research you did and the kind of touches and nuances that you've added to, to make this period correct? Well, the director, um, Casey Lemons, was, you know, she had a very specific vision of what she wanted. And that scar that we created, we actually took creative license with that. Right. Because history sort of says that the scar was probably on the side of her head. But you wouldn't be able to see that with her hair and all that. So Casey said, let's um, let's put something in the center of her head, but let's make it subtle. So we made this sort of a triangular, very subtle thing and put it in the middle of her, of, uh, her head to sort of give that part of the story some life. Um, and as far as everything else, you know, for me with, with period, uh, particularly um, stories about Black people who were enslaved. It's very important to me to not project this sort of stereotypical vision of what people think they should have looked like. Like they always make them dirty, and it's. And I have to say, you know, when you really look back, no, they weren't dirty. Maybe their clothes were tattered because you know it wasn't like anybody was giving them a lot of new clothing. Right. But their hair was clean. Their skin was clean. The clothes might be raggedy, but they would be clean. 
And so it was really important to me um, to project that, that even though these people were people who were enslaved human beings, they were not dirty. Um, and that was important to Cassie as well. You know, we, we wanted to show that there was pride. Yeah. Well, yes. There was pride. And so, um, you know, it was wonderful to to be able to, you know, create that history, but also to show that my ancestors were not just a bunch of, you know, wild people who had no couth or no, no class or anything. Um, and so it was, um, it was an honor to be able to tell that story mm. for me, a real honor. Um, you know, someone said to me, well, you know, you didn't, you didn't make uh, Cynthia's teeth brown. It's like, well, you know, not everybody had brown teeth. Yeah. You know, some people had nice teeth naturally. So, no, I wasn't going to paint everybody's teeth brown and, you know, give everybody dirty hands and dirty nails. And so that was, that's something that for me, telling the story of black people's lives in this country telling it from a perspective of reality and not a perspective of sort of this sort of, you know, somebody else's perspective of what they thought it looked like. But that's also what you do with your music. When you do a cover, you don't just give the audience what they expect. You add the nuances. And so I can see how that carries over. Yes. And I really wanted right. you to share that because I was fascinated by your approach to that. Because we've seen in Hollywood, they're like, 100%, it's this. It's like, well, no. Just like we are all different. People were different there. And I love that you said pride. It's like that could have been the aspect of their life that they had control over, right. and that was their pride. Right. 100%. Right. I, that was so beautifully put. What was it like working with Cynthia? Oh, She changed my life. I sat in the third row in New York for the color purple. Mm -hmm. I felt like she sang it directly to me. It was just transformative. And it was the longest standing ovation I've ever uh, witnessed. Yeah. yeah, she has a gorgeous voice, really beautiful voice. And she has a work ethic that is like no other. I mean, I watched her <clears throat> literally go into this river at night in the dark. It was not a made up tank. This was a river in Virginia. It was probably 30 degrees at night. Mm. And that scene where she walks across and oh, she's God. up to her chin, she's in a real river. Yeah. She never complained. She never whined. She ran up mountains. She swam through dirt. She rolled over in the mud. She did whatever was needed. And I have great respect for um, her and her acting abilities and her commitment to the role. <clears throat> she was very committed. Amazing. And I respect her very much for that. <sighs> So we're going to talk about the reality of life. Um, your second book, Chubby, Chubby, uh, The Bear's Big Choice. This also comes from your reality. If you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Sure. Um, what, what? Who is Chubby the Bear and what's he going through? Well, first, I was inspired to write a second book just because of the outpouring of love for the first book. And my approach to the first book was to not sugarcoat the content, was to not create it as a cartoon to talk to children, not as dumb little beings, but talk to them in full sentences. They're and very to, smart now with these smartphones and everything that they're seeing. 
So that I think resonated. And so I said, what could be, what could my second story be? I had at the time, George uh, was moving in with me and my first Christmas present to him was to uh, have a bear on a swing that we hung on the tree. I really wanted him to feel at home. I have so many things to say about that, but I won't. <laughs> I wanted him to feel at home in the house and you know, I was made, made part of the, the tree outside That's his. so sweet. Working from home, uh, the bear sits on the swing and we're on a block with the elementary school. And all of a sudden I'm working in my office, which sits right out in front of the house, in the front part of the house. And I'm hearing children walking by and stopping at the tree and talking to the bear as if it's an actual thing, person. These long conversations would go on and... I would just sit and listen. I peek through my blinds and it just really tickled me. And it just didn't happen once. It happened daily. And, you know, then I, one of my neighbors had a really very precocious nanny, I think, and, or thoughtful nanny and started leaving the bear notes and other other kids saw the bear getting notes. And I happened to know the the children that were leaving the first note. So I wrote the, I wrote back to the children as As the the bear. bear. Oh my God, that's uh, amazing. So that's a show in itself. It by started the way. to bring, breathe life into this bear. And I said, Bing, there's an idea. I said, you know, I'm going to use that bear as a voice to, to tell a story. And it was important for me to think about what that next kind of subject matter was. So I thought, you know, standing up to bullies and body image is one of my biggest, biggest issues as a human being. I, Grappled with it for six, uh, nearly sixty years, as long as I can remember. Uh, and again, it became my mission: if I can help one child or one other person deal with this subject matter or deal with this issue in a better way than I did, then I've done my job. So that was that was what I started out with. And I started to write a story. I wrote a draft, and I asked my aunt Marianne, "Would you be down to write another, to to illustrate another book?" And I didn't have to ask her twice. She started. She goes, "What's it about?" And she started uh, drawing these gorgeous, gorgeous paintings or drawings that would later become these gorgeous paintings. These illustrations in these books are paintings. Yeah. They're in the first book they were uh, oil and chalk. And then in this book, they are oil, oil, oil paintings, and they are stunning. You've seen them in person. Oh, I've seen them in person. And, you know, we talk about texture, the texture you have with, with your music. Her art matches the texture that you tell in the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. That was fresh. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to know, what were the notes that kids were leaving? What, what were they saying? Some were just, they would be drawings and others would be asking, what, you know, what's your name, Bear? And I would write back I and say, that. well, why don't you tell me what my name should be? And uh, it was, and there's a, a, a raccoon that sits on the foot of the bear on this little swing. Um, so the raccoon had to play a prominent role in the book. And it does. Uh, it certainly does. How did you get through that bullying as a kid? Because I, I went through the same bullying. Um 
it's tough. Yeah, I think I I retreated. You know, sometimes the the calls were coming from inside the house. I love my brothers dearly, but you know, they picked that's on me. Bro- yeah, they picked on me terribly, and you know, it was very hard. You know, to to manage and you know, I tell a story in elementary school. I was a very, very chubby kid. I had to shop in a special Husky boys section. Girl, I remember a Husky at J.C. Penney. That's yeah. where I was. It's in the yep. back corner of the yes. of the section. And my grandma's like, section. "Cookies, here's Husky." I was like, "Oh my god, girl!" Yeah. And you know, it was just a it was just a subclass. I can't describe it anything else. Uh, but we would, in elementary school, have to go to the nurse's office twice a year to be weighed and measured. So they they had a chart. In the classroom that had our height and our weight. No. From first grade through fifth grade. I swear to God. And we stood up and the nurse. I had homeschool. Mrs. Rappelt would make us line up because it was it was one of you those still old remember scales. Her name. That's how ingrained it is. Oh, I can picture it. Yeah. It was those old school scales where you slid. So she had us line up by by size and weight. So she didn't have to move the the you know, the weights back and forth as much. Um, and it was me and my dear friends Kathy and Donna in the back of the line every year because we were the the by other terms obese children at the time and it was just it was a lesson in humiliation and there was nowhere to put that you know I didn't take it home and didn't talk about it to my family I told my mother that when I was probably 50 or 60, 55 years old, maybe before she died. And she broke down in tears because she was very active in the school. She was on the P, she was the president of the PTA. And she said, she goes, if I had known that, then I would have put a stop to that. And I said, I don't know if you would have, because it was a different time. And, you know, I have a lot of, you know, a lot of perspective, you know, the times were different. Um, but I think the things still happen, and it's still I I hear it. I I hear kids being bullied, and mm-hmm. I well, just and that's social media. It. It's easy to bully anybody on social media. It sure is, and I, I guess the only benefit is we're seeing diversity in all different ways in media. We're seeing ourselves on film. We're seeing ourselves on Broadway. We're seeing this talk of of it, and you know I think kids in real life are thinking twice. Hopefully, right. And we have books like like Chubby the Bear. <laughs> I heard a talk show the other night on NPR saying that will Ozempic, the the miracle drug, mm-hmm. change our perspectives of obesity? And will people who are heavy no longer be even respected for their body image? Uh, because, oh, why aren't you taking a drug? You should be able to fix that now. So it's it, it's not going to end with, with medicine. It's only going to get worse. I had this conversation with, because I'm a huge nerd, with a producer from Star Trek. And the thought is, in the future, you take a pill or they just laser it off and, and it's like, well, that's assuming that you're ashamed of who you are right. or you're ashamed of how I look. It's like, no, I, I don't want to fix who I am, like such as being gay. No, I don't want to fix it. I'm I'm good, girl. Thanks. There's one of the lines in the book that I just cracks me up. So it's, even when I read it, um, the, the, the line is, you're a bear. Aren't you supposed to be fat? I mean, <laughs> like there's just, there's certain human characteristics like we're all different sizes can't we just be who we are without judgment without shame yeah (sighs) all right i'm gonna talk about building trust you build trust with people that are in your makeup chair and carrie mulligan loved you so much she's like you need to make up for a promising woman (laughs) tell me how you build that trust 
Um, and I feel like in the crisis in PR, you see them at their most naked, whether it's the CEO of another company or uh, a personality who's done something wrong. And you see an actor at their most naked. Maybe they're so nervous about the scene that they're filming. Maybe they're in a bad mood. Maybe they're going through a breakup. But you see them at their most vulnerable, no makeup, and you're applying that. How do you build that trust? Um, well, I'm a, I would say I'm a very kinetic person. So I feel people's energy. Um, I can tell usually what they're feeling when they sit in the chair based on body language, sometimes facial expression. Um, and I think it's important to learn how to read the room, as they say. It's very important yeah. um, to to be, you know, sensitive enough to sort of feel and see what their mood may be. <clears throat> um, I... I do sort of pride myself in that I try to be a caretaker for people. Um, and that can mean either knowing when to talk and ask them how their day was or is going or how are they feeling this morning to knowing when to shut up and not say a thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because <laughs> Especially are, with artists, because you never know. That's Yes, there yeah. are days where it's just, you know, some people. Now, Carrie is one of these people who is always the same. She is the same every day, hmm. lovely. She's lovely every single day. Um, I think how I built trust with Carrie was when we did Mudbound, um, she was still nursing um, her son. And um, I know that there was a scene where she was going to have to bite calluses off of her hands. Yep. And, you know, in makeup world, we use a lot of things that are chemicals, you know, and uh, maybe it's not deathly harmful. But I was a mom who had nursed a baby. I wouldn't take anything in my body that I would suspect could possibly hurt my child. So I said to myself, OK, what can I do to give her something that she can bite off her hands. It's going to look like calluses, but won't there won't be any chance of anything going into her milk to bother her baby. And so I took golden raisins <laughs> and I cut them lengthwise down the middle and then spread them out because they do look like yellow and dry. Yes, like I, I'm seeing it right now. I'm That's like, perfect. you're right, girl. And uh, yeah, I've used food in a couple things. <laughs> I um, use food in most things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I use those for the calluses. And I think the fact that I put so much thought in it to Who try to that? do that for her, I think she really appreciated that. You know, and I think she could see that I had her best interest at heart in addition to doing what needs to be done for the production, but I'm also going to watch out for you too. Yeah. It's so, empathy. Yes, empathy. Putting yourself right. in their shoes just That's for right. a moment. That's right. But also there's that like on a, on a film, it's like, okay, get them done, whatever we have to film, we have to do this, but you took the extra time to think outside the box. Well, and I think that, you know, that's sort of what gets you to that next place is the people who sort of, go that extra mile to think of something when it seems like there's something that's going to be impossible. Like me using a chicken bone in Mudbound because we didn't have money to do a, a compound fracture on one of the actors. So, you know, I, there I was with chicken bones and bleaching them at night in my hotel room and slicing them up with razors and, you know, placing them in and in a different position so hmm. that it looked That's like- That's a reality show we need. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's also thinking outside the box, the way you get from an earned intern to being CEO mm. of, you know, that's how you earn your place. It's the hustle. Okay, um, we need to wind down, but I really want to know, because this whole show is about pivoting. How have you changed the most since you've added music to your professional life? As a person, not professionally, but as a person. Uh, my boundaries are definitely uh, more firm. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's made it very important to me to find balance because working in film and television, the hours are brutal. Yeah. And if you don't watch it, you won't have any balance. You'll just be working all the time. Um, so for me, it has definitely made me find a place for balance and to stick to it. And when I sense that things are getting out of balance, I will say, okay, need to not take that job or maybe do this project instead of that one because it affords me time with my family or so. Yeah. Balance. I think it's about just feeling the joy again. You said it best. I think it's like, if you're not feeling that joy, you got to, you got to get out and do something else. Mm -hmm. You know, being creative and having time in my now career to to do the things that I've always wanted to do. I remember being in a Miami conference with my corporate leaders of the holding company that owned our firm. And we went around the room and we were saying, say something. I think the question was, tell, tell all the other leaders in the room something that no one else knows about you. And I stood up and blurted out, I want to write books and screenplays one day. Oh, and I was like the CEO of a PR firm. Like that was probably not the thing that my boss wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the owner of the company did not want to hear that I was possibly off writing a screenplay. Um, but that was what was in my heart. And I blurted it out. And now that I'm doing that stuff, it's just, it's this other side of my life that's just so full and, and complete. And it made other things fall right into place. So um, there's something healthy about getting in that right lane. Okay, I have not, just one more question. This is a bit more intimate. You know, uh, uh, there's a beautiful behind the scenes video that you have for Truth Be Told. And you talk about your husband and how important he was to making it. We also know you established this new media company with your husband. Um, I want to know how pivoting has changed that kind of uh, relationship dynamic for the better. Well, interestingly enough, <laughs> my husband and I, <clears throat> when I first started, he would sort of call places and get me booked. And, you know, he yep. sort of was my representation. And then as time went on, uh, we just decided it would probably be better for our marriage <laughs> that is for tough. him yeah. to not do that and uh, to be separate from my business. Um, so what he does do, however, is, you know, when, when I'm going to go into production, you know, it's our money that goes into making an album. So he's part of that. Um, he also helps, like if I, if I have a show and I've got stuff to do and I can't do everything, he will jump in and help, but it's no longer like an official yep. position, but he has always been supportive um, you know, if I said that I wanted to go and sing somewhere, okay, well, that's fine. You know, we'll figure out how to make it happen. So I felt it was important to, you know, acknowledge that he's always supportive 
when I am about to take one of my creative adventures. Mm. But do you think also getting into music, it's added some passion back into it because you're living your art and, and your passion? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think just, you know, life in general, it just feels more exciting um, because I am doing yeah. the music and it does bring me a lot of joy and a lot of excitement. So, yeah, I think it makes you feel more alive. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's uh, the only analogy I can give for what George and I are doing is PG-13. Like, <laughs> like composers of a musical. Like he yeah. writes the lyrics, I write the music, or vice that versa. Is so sweet. Um, they say the best marriage is 50-50. Well, that's our business. We're 50-50 partners in our business. And you know, he does the social media, I do the marketing communications, and it magically comes together and clients eat it up and are at least they are for now. And it's uh so much fun to just be working together. It's so as long as I'll write the music and he writes the lyrics, it's going to work. Okay. All right. What a special episode. You know, usually we're just like, woohoo, blah, blah, blah. I know we got a little deep uh, today, but that's life, right? Yes, that's life. And if we've learned anything, it's, you know, go after your passion. But you have to hustle for it. It's just not going to be like, I'm going to be an influencer tomorrow. It's going to happen. No, not at all. Ugh. I got chills from today's episode. <laughs> I don't know. Follow your heart. It's <laughs> like a cue for a song. That's true. Well, I wrote a song called Follow Your Dreams, which I sang at the Boise year before last. It's the immemorial. But Take yes, us out with Follow Your Dreams, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be tough, too, to, to perform that when you see all these people that have passed. Yeah, last year was actually really hard. The song I wrote last year was called <clears throat> The Last Goodbye. And... Um, uh, it was hard because literally in January, like January the 10th, a really good childhood friend of mine passed away. And then two weeks later, my father-in-law passed away. And then three days after that, our son's um, uh, Boy Scout troop leader passed away. So I, within like three weeks, I had lost three people. And I was I have a book for that. Song. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I, I wrote a song about that and it was tough to get through even you know singing yeah. it to get through writing it um but uh yeah follow your dreams it's it's so important it really is give them all you have to give yeah angie where can we find and follow you uh you can find me on instagram uh, at angie wells jazz facebook andy angie wells jazz uh spotify angie wells all the usual suspects itunes you know amazon all those guys and take that journey it's it's a beautiful journey oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> daryl what can we find and follow you uh facebook uh, daryl mccullough instagram daryl underscore mc or author underscore daryl mc uh, LinkedIn is a good place to find a business guy. So well, Daryl McCullough. That is true. And I have to tell you, he brought a bunch of copies of Chubby the Bear that are signed by him um, and his aunt who did the illustrations. We're going to be doing a giveaway. Go to Instagram at On The Rocks On Air. We're going to be doing a giveaway with Metrosource Magazine, by the way. Beautiful. So um, we have copies to, to send to you. What a special episode. Thank you. Thank you, both of you, for sharing your story in such an intimate way. Thank you, Tony, by the fun. way. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, it's always a grab bag of fun here on, on the Rocks. You never know what's going to happen, literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, follow us at ontherocksradioshow.com. Uh, please like, share, subscribe so we can continue bringing this show 
to you for free. Thank you to our social media clip editor, Alexis Mendez. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay sexy. And if you drink, stay tipsy. This has been another episode of On The Rocks. Tweet me, slide into my DMs on Twitter and Instagram at On The Rocks On Air. Find everything On The Rocks for free at ontherocksradioshow.com. Subscribe, like, review, and share. Until next week, stay fabulous. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.